0: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the 60,000-seat stadium for the city of Surrey promised by Mayor Doug McCallum. The Surrey mayor dropped this bombshell promise on the campaign trail this week as he runs for re-election. He wants to build that stadium in the Fleetwood neighborhood of Surrey. The mayor says he wants the Vancouver Canucks to play there. He wants the BC Lions to play there. I've got sports business expert Norm O'Reilly standing by to break this down for us. First, let's have a listen here to something the mayor had to say yesterday. He outlined some more details of this 60,000-seat stadium in Surrey where he wants the BC Lions to relocate and play. Now, think about this now. The Lions, even though they're one of the best teams in the CFL right now, they're only drawing about, what, 17,000 fans a game? Why would you need a 60,000-seat stadium for the B.C. Lions? The mayor's answer to that yesterday is he wants, he wants to bump up the attendance for Lions games. Here's what he had to say. We're going to build the Lions up so they have 40, 45. When I was a kid, they used to get in the 35, 40,000 people come in. Okay, so he thinks he can fill up this stadium, or mostly fill it up. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Norm O'Reilly. Norm is the Dean at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Maine. He's taught at Canadian universities as well. He's an expert on the business of sports. He's the co-author of the book, Business the NHL Way. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Norm, thanks a lot for coming on today.
1: Thanks, Mike. Great to be here again. Love coming on.
0: Okay, Norm, what went through your mind when you heard about this one, a 60,000-seat stadium here in Surrey that would host both professional football and professional hockey? Your thoughts.
1: Yeah, uh, great question, and a few things right away. One, very high risk, essentially high reward. And two, is he counting on taxpayer dollars to pay for this? Because we know, and you know, across the country and around the world, that just doesn't work out for taxpayers and end up being sold. There's many, many examples. So does he have a plan? And even if he gets 35,000 people per game, which would be wonderful for uh, for for the venue and the area and all those kind of things, that's only a few nights a year. So these things yeah. you really think about them: the tourism and what they're going to generate. But high reward if it does work, it grows Surrey, brings national attention, brands come in, maybe gets naming rights, etc. You attract new teams to the area could be a home run. So high risk, high reward, kind of uh, very, very, very normal for campaign promises, right? Oh,
0: Okay. Well, I, I know that the mayor did say yesterday he's counting on other levels of government to jump on board here and start pouring money in into this project. But when you're talking about a 60,000 seat multi-use stadium that would be used for professional hockey, professional football too, I don't think there's an, any other stadium in North America that is like that. So we're talking about some sort of revolutionary design here. How much? How much would that cost? Do you think? Well, for,
1: yeah. For, I, first of all, at least, at least with the bare bones, you're talking five hundred million U.S. dollars and likely more. And second, yeah. to your point, there's none like this. And everyone that had a dual-use stadium, a lot of baseball and football used to be together, as you know. Those have really disappeared. Hockey and basketball, natural fit, makes a lot of sense. You have an NBA and an NHL club. That's a business model that can work. But very few cities, smaller cities, have been able to pull off attracting two clubs. An expansion right now is a multi-billion dollar effort, right, before you even think about it. A venue or a team, so yeah, a lot of obstacles there and a lot of challenges. But maybe there's a there's a plan there that would be unique and and innovative that could change it. But yeah, the trends out there are very uh, different for mixing, you know, very against mixing football and baseball with basketball and hockey.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And why is that? That and certainly we can all remember examples of stadiums where football and baseball have played in the same venue. Like, why has there been a a movement away from that model?
1: Really, it's a great question, and it's really about the fan. And as you know, with the rise of, you know, digital consumption, getting people, even in big cities, into venues has been getting harder and harder and harder because we can sit at home in our basement in front of our 80-inch television and and enjoy. So it's getting more and more challenging. So Brooklyn's the best, most recent example, and the Islanders were there. This was a venue that was designed specifically for basketball. So if you went, and I got to go to a couple of games for, for hockey, the sight lines weren't great. People were in, in awkward scenarios. You think about football games and baseball games with the track between the crowd and the field in the past, or some CFL stadiums still have that. That's just not ideal. And people really want that world-class experience. And so it gets really tricky with different size fields, different rules, different sight lines. So, it's yeah, very, very challenging to uh, to make that, with the exception of, of basketball and hockey, which works well.
0: Hey, Norm, you're an expert on the business of sports. Your new book is on business and economics of the National Hockey League. The mayor in Surrey says he wants the Vancouver Canucks to move into this new stadium in, in Surrey. Does that make any kind of rational sense at all to you when the Canucks are owned by you know, an Aquilini family that already owns the stadium that they're playing in, they own a whole bunch of condo towers all around the stadium. Why? Why on earth would they want to move out of there? I just don't see the rationale for that.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's a tough question. But if I was advising the mayor on this, that's exactly what you'd say is you need an anchor tenant, which we call them, right? And so, and ideally, you have two. And so arenas that have an NBA and an NHL club do, can do well because you've got high occupancy rates, you get some concerts going on, some other events, it's fine. So clearly that, that's the idea. You need an anchor tenant. Is that anchor tenant willing to leave downtown Vancouver and go out to a more suburban area? I mean, if you're advising on that side, ooh, that's, as you say, that's a really, really challenging decision that would yeah. take an enormous price tag. So I think you're right. That's a really hard thing to happen. Yeah. Even look at Ottawa with a wi- willing owner wanting to move the Sens he's the late uh, owner, wanted to have the sends downtown. That's been a discussion for 10 years. It looks like it might happen now. That's required a changeover in ownership, a huge, and it's still not certain. So these are big, big long-term decisions, to your point, that aren't going to happen overnight and not without a huge price tag.
0: Speaking of Norm O'Reilly, his book is Business, the NHL Way. He's an expert on the business and economics of professional sports. The 60,000 seat stadium promised in Surrey by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Now, speaking of the big price tag, and, and you touched briefly on this earlier, Norm, about whether taxpayers' money would flow into a project like this. I mean, I think clearly the mayor signaled yesterday That's what he wants. He wants other levels of government to get on board with this and help build this thing. I don't see any appetite or willingness by either the feds or the province to get involved in something like this. I mean, we just saw a provincial government here in B.C. got absolutely fried politically over a decision to put a billion dollars into a new museum that they had to cave on and back away from because there was a taxpayer uproar over it. There, I don't see any possibility that either level of government wants to pour hundreds of millions of dollars into a project like this. I mean, what, what is your read of that, like the willingness of governments right now to put money into stadiums?
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's almost zero, and particularly when it's for professional sport. Because the average taxpayer, why should we help billionaire owners and multimillionaire players in these kind of, of scenarios? When you And you put yourself, in, I've got to do lots of this in my – legal legal work is that the looking at what is the venue benefit for a taxpayer? And you start saying, well, what about hospitals, roads, schools, all these things you want? Why should we put money here? And unless there's massive tourism, which is something, you know, I know Vancouver's looking at the Olympic games. There's an argument maybe there if you can use venues, but if you're going to put all this money in, and you're not. a lot of those people that are going to buy tickets are going to be people that live there already. Some do travel, and we've seen that in other places. But is there really a tourism impact that's going to help the local economy? Is it going to attract new, new investment, new business? Yes, clearly some. But is it enough to offset that massive investment? And it's not like there's endless trees of money, as you point out, for governments. They're not just going to yeah. create a new pot of money. It's got to come out of those other important societal things that we all want to do. So, yeah, that is a tough tough sell. And if you imagine it going to a plebiscite or a vote, which a lot of these big expenditures do, I don't know if the museum went that way, but it's really, really hard to get 50% uh, of people, even with a
0: wonderful outcome of sport, which I love and you love, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, Norm, thanks for coming on today with your analysis. Appreciate it.
1: Anytime, Mike. Thank you. And hopefully that was helpful for everybody.
0: All right, let's talk about the future of our region now, the future of our cities. The city of Vancouver currently facing major challenges and problems. Just think about all the different challenges the city faces. How about the tent city on Hastings Street? Remember it was about a month ago that the city's fire chief put in that order to remove the tents and structures on Hastings because it represented a major fire hazard. A month later, you got the tents and structures are still there. Despite that, though, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart said this week he's pleased with the progress being made down there. Have a listen to this report now from Global News. 2,000 kilograms every day. That's how much material Vancouver engineers are removing from East Hastings Street since work began two weeks ago. Wednesday morning the city provided an update saying progress is being made.
2: The bottom line is that we have made good progress in terms of uh, moving people indoors, reducing fire risk and clearing garbage and refuse
0: from Hastings Street. Okay, it's Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking there. I think a lot of people might be a little surprised to hear the mayor say that he's pleased with the progress that's being made in that neighborhood. Is Vancouver a city on the way down? Look, Take a look at this tweet from Delta City Councilor Dylan Kruger this week, who's standing by to speak to me. I'm going to read his tweet here. Vancouver... Is a city in decline? Vancouver squabbles with itself over building six stories on arterials, while Surrey approves three high rises a week. Vancouver is dead. This future is south of the Fraser. Delta City Councilor Dylan Kruger, He joins me now. Hey, Dylan, thanks for coming on. Nice. Thanks for having me. What an intro. Oh. Okay. well, I'll tell you what, what a tweet that that tweet got a lot of attention uh, for you that you believe Vancouver is in decline, that Vancouver is dead and the future lies elsewhere in the region. Why do you feel that way?
3: The future of the Lower Mainland is not in Vancouver. Uh, It's south of the Fraser. It's in a lot of different places. And we were seeing that before the pandemic. Uh, We're seeing it now even more so uh, people moving rapidly uh, out of Vancouver, looking for a place that's not going to charge them. 8 to 10% a year in property tax increases uh, while receiving less services, while feeling less safe, uh, and where politicians are focused more on the basics like ensuring safe streets, approving new housing, getting the good work of local government done. The city of Surrey is going to eclipse Vancouver by 2030 in terms of population. By 2030, we're going to call it Metro Surrey. It's not going to be Metro Vancouver. That trend is starting now. It might not be evident to everyone, but the planning decisions that are being made in the region are shifting demographics that way.
0: Okay. Is it fair to say that Vancouver is dead right now, given that a lot of the challenges they face are just because of the nature of of their downtown right now? Like a lot of the the policing costs that the city of Vancouver faces right now, like a city like Delta doesn't have the same problems, right? I mean, you guys don't have like a sprawling encampment like they've got on Hastings Street right now. And that's something that you know that the city has the city of vancouver has to deal with but other cities do not have to deal with it your thoughts
3: yeah that's very common but i'd say at the same time decisions matter delta uh, increases our police and emergency services budget every year vancouver fights to reduce its police budget delta keeps our school liaison officers uh, in the schools which we see is really important from a gang prevention uh, standpoint and for other reasons Vancouver schools have, have taken police out of their schools. So d- decisions matter and, and, and leadership matters. And I think it's on any topic. I mean, pick a topic, whether it's housing, public safety, the environment, arts and culture. Vancouver's being outshone by its surrounding cities.
0: Okay, so let's talk about a few of those, counselor. let Let's talk about housing, for example. Do you think that cities south of the Fraser are just being more responsive to the housing pressures than, say, the city of Vancouver?
3: I think there's re- less red tape, there's less barriers. I mean, people that I know that try to get a meeting at City Hall in Vancouver take six months just to get a meeting with the planner. Meanwhile, again, I I, you know, I use Surrey again as an example. They do. You watch their council meetings. They're approving new high-rises every week. Delta, we're not to the same extent, obviously, but we are approving on a much shorter time frame. Burnaby, even north of the Fraser. I mean, Vancouver used to have the tallest buildings, not not just in North America, but in the British Empire. They don't even have the tallest buildings in their own region anymore. Burnaby and Surrey are building taller and more interesting buildings. Vancouver's tallest building is now 15 years old, and we haven't seen anything indicating that we're going to get anything close to that anytime soon. Burnaby is considering building a 900-foot, 900, uh, 900 82-story tower, which would be the tallest building west of Toronto. So you're seeing other wow. cities really taking the lead when it comes to building the housing that our region desperately needs, not just today, For the million people that are going to be here in the next 20
0: years. There's been lots of fingers pointed at various municipalities as being too slow to approve new housing projects. And in fact, we've got an incoming premier here, David Eby, who was poised to become the next premier of the province, saying that he's concerned about that and hinting that the provincial government could bring the hammer down in some way to force municipalities to build more, to force them to densify. Do you think that's the answer? Do you think the do you think these municipalities need to be forced to build more housing?
3: I think the biggest mistake the province made last year was they gave options for cities to become more efficient without mandating that additional efficiency. Uh, cities will not, of their own volition, say uh, no to additional and redundant consultation. I think they do need some level of direction and, and guidance from the province because we've collectively demonstrated, and this is a collective failure of all municipalities, that Uh, we're going to take local neighbourhood concerns uh, potentially more seriously than the greater housing needs of the unhoused or the underhoused uh, in the region. I mean, look at, David E.B. was talking about um, Seneca, the Squamish development south of the Burrard Street Bridge in the Vancouver Sun this morning. The Squamish nation, and that's not in the city of Vancouver, by the way, that's a Squamish territory project. That project is going to build thousands of new rental units at the foot of the Burrard Street Bridge. That project alone will do more to address the housing crisis in the region than Vancouver or other municipalities have been able to do for the last
0: 10 years. Speaking to Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger, taking a look at your tweet again, Dylan, Vancouver is a city in decline. Vancouver is dead. The future is south of the Fraser. Getting back some pushback here from Vancouver residents and politicians too. Like I note that some Vancouver City Councillors Firing back at you here. So Melissa DeGenova, for example, the city councillor says, "Hey, Dylan, will Delta take on some of the badly needed social housing in the region? What do you say to that?"
3: Yeah, and I, and I, I told Melissa absolutely, and I've been fighting for, and I think we're we're seeing we are seeing municipalities, including Delta, asking um, you know b- uh, non profit housing societies and BC Housing and Metro Housing to look at our cities for more housing we can do more we have to do more and it's not the fault i don't want to point blame on individual counselors in vancouver vancouver is just so fun to pick on though because you look at these multi-day 12-hour marathon public hearings you're thinking wow this must be a really significant project that they're debating having hundreds of speakers and counter question points and and points of order Uh, and it turns out that we're talking about a six-story building here or a uh, a 12-story below market building here Um, even the broadway subway line the marathon that that was uh, Vancouver City Councilor told me that he, uh, th- this council in particular, was was very concerned about that uh, Broadway plan because of view impacts. So we've got a housing crisis, but we're more concerned about the view impacts of somebody driving down Broadway for two minutes every day, rather than housing people and transiting to development on subway on subway stations. So I think the rest of the region looks at this, and I just think sometimes you know we, we focus a lot of media attention on Vancouver because it was at one point the leader in the region. I don't see that happening anymore, and often I think the leaders in Vancouver are kind of shouting in an empty room. The rest of the region is moving let's, on and, and trying to deal with the challenges that's, that's facing the Lower Mainland.
0: Let's, let's talk about another one of the comparators that you brought up there and public safety, and we focus on that a lot here on, on this show. We've talked a lot about the random violence assaults on the streets of Vancouver for a day on average, according to the Vancouver Police Department. Again, what is what are your thoughts on that? Like on the public safety record for the city compared to the approach of other other cities, let's say south of the Fraser, where you are.
3: Yeah. Again, I think leadership and decisions matter. Uh, the, the most basic responsibility of a municipal government is to ensure safe communities. And if you're not investing in your emergency services, in your police and your fire, uh, then you, you get you get those results. I mean, the largest by far budget item in, in the city of Delta and in most cities. Uh, is our policing budget and uh, we're proud of that local control that we're able to have with an independent police force um, but we also listen to the the needs of our police board and our police chief and and respond accordingly and i you know i, I think it's a little bit out of touch and counterintuitive to, on the one hand so, you know really trying to tackle public safety yet you're also fighting with the police and the supreme court to to slash the police budget
0: well well the police budget in Vancouver is the biggest part of their budget too right it's like 21% of the total budget of the city for policing yeah. Uh, and, uh,
3: and and property taxes go up 6%, 7%, 8% a year, uh, and the police budget uh, declines uh, in proportion, and at the same time, they're, they're suing big oil companies. So it comes yeah. down to level of priority, I think, and what is our role as a municipal government, and what is the jurisdiction, perhaps, of, of other representatives with other levels of government.
0: All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the future of our region, the future of Vancouver. My guest, Delta City Councilor Dylan Kruger. Let's go to your calls. Ken in South Surrey. Hi, Ken.
2: Hey, hi, guys. I used to live in Vancouver. I moved out of there years ago. I avoid going to Vancouver. The only reason I go to Vancouver now is I've got a family doctor and he's downtown right across from St. Paul's. But when I go down, I take the Skytrain. You walk down uh, Granville Street in broad daylight, and what you see is disgusting. And it looks like wow. you know society as a whole just accepts it. And you know there's po- if I used to go down the commercial drive for coffee uh, at a place I, or restaurants down there, I avoid it. They've screwed up the parking. The, uh, the, the the it's really really bad. And I think the city is disgusting. And I I don't know what they're going to do about it. I think it's gone too far. It reminds me of an American
0: what? city. Ken, thank you for the call. Parts of the city are in terrible, terrible shape. I mean, definitely downtown Eastside, that Hastings Street encampment, that is the worst that we've ever seen down there. I mean, I've talked to people who have been police officers or first responders down there for 30 years. They have never, ever seen it this bad. Annette in Vancouver. Hi, Annette.
1: Hello. Uh, Thank you, Dylan, for calling in and giving us your thoughts on what you think of Vancouver. I have lived in Vancouver since 1981. It was once, as you all know, the most beautiful city in the world. Now it is totally disgusting. Even I now do not drive downtown to Robson Street. Robson Street is abominable. The only Mm. people we can blame for this is Kennedy Stewart and the councillors. They are also totally incompetent and they're all out for what they want. They personally want. Not what they should do for the betterment of Vancouver. But it's their own self interest. Okay, thank and you for is the issue. Thanks.
0: Thank you for the thank you for the call. I mean, these are top of mind issues I think for voters in an election that's approaching in the fall. Delta City Councillor is Dylan Krueger is my guest. Councillor, your thoughts?
3: Mike, we do have an opportunity this fall to elect councillors across the region who want to prioritize and tackle these challenges. And I think what I've heard from your callers is what I've seen anecdotally in in Delta and and in other cities where we're seeing more and more people coming. I'm knocking on doors right now because my election's in October. And I can't believe the number of people whose doors I knock on who say, we came here from Vancouver last year. We came six months ago. We came two years ago. We just can't do it anymore. We love what you guys are doing in Delta. We get that same Uh, urban experience. We're still 20 to 30 minutes from all the amenities, but we don't have to deal with all this nonsense. So I'm seeing more and more people moving out here because of reasons like that.
0: Let's go to Bruce on the line in Surrey. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead.
4: Hi, Mike. How are you doing? When I moved to Surrey 25 years ago, it was called the City of Parks, but no more. In the last few years, they built, the city's put roads through two different parks. And now McCallum's talking about building a 60,000 square. Each stadium on the corridor on the sky train corridor going to langley well that is all parks you know there mm-hmm. i think there should be a cap on the populations on cities
0: um i don't know how you do that thanks for the call Well i don't know how you cap population in a in a free country with mobility rights and people are allowed to move around and live where they want let's go yeah. to nate let's, let's go to nathan on the line and burn behind nathan go ahead yeah, I just, it's refreshing. And your guest there, someone who speaks like competent with uh, with uh,
4: ideas and projects that everyone goes, hey, that's a good idea. Because I cannot remember the last time I've heard anything come out of city council where we all go, wow, what a great idea and solution. They, they're always on the defensive
0: to everything they come up with
4: because they're just terrible ideas it just blows my mind meanwhile
0: like everyone give me, else give says, me an exa- give me an example of a terrible idea
4: <laughs> cup fee let's start with that one and how many months cup how fee. Okay. dollars was invested into the cup fee good god it's it's always yeah. analysis paralysis by analysis
0: okay nathan it just thank blows you my mind thank you for the call counselor your thoughts
3: Yeah. And just some more stats for you, Mike. Um, When we talk about this this brain drain that's happening out of Vancouver and into surrounding suburbs, the population of Surrey alone grew from 517,000 in 2016 to 568,000 last year. By comparison, Vancouver's population increased from 631 to 662. So by 2030, we're going to be in Metro Surrey. We're not going to be in Metro Vancouver. When you look at what the lower mainland was 20, 30 years ago compared, uh, sorry, south of the Fraser, Delta, Surrey, yep. Langley, to what it is today, it is, yep. it is like night and day. There are real cities out there, and people are
0: moving in groves. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about student debt in British Columbia and in Canada. There is a lot of student debt has been piled up in our country. Billions of dollars owed by students to pay back student loans. Look what's going on south of the border in the United States, where the Joe Biden administration this week announced student debt forgiveness. More than $40 american students could see their student loan debt reduced or in a lot of cases completely eliminated this is billions of dollars in debt relief for students in the united states should we do the same thing right here in canada i got ndp mla blake desjarlais standing by to discuss first have a listen to this u.s president joe biden speaking this week
5: we will forgive ten thousand dollars and outstanding federal
2: student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income
0: families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Okay, up to $20,000 in debt relief for student loans in the United States. Should we do the same thing? Let's discuss now with my guest, Blake Dejarle, NDP MP. Blake is the NDP critic for Advanced Education. Very pleased to welcome him. Blake, thanks for coming on today.
6: Hey, Mike. Really glad to be on.
0: I appreciate your time today. What did you think about the move by the Biden administration this week?
6: Oh, Mike, I really think that a lot of students in the United States, especially right now, when so many folks are being crushed by the kind of cost of living crisis we're in, I think it's a sign of relief. It's a sign that's going to help students. And it's something that I think Canadians should be looking towards and something that I think the Democrats have always been committed to. Even in the last campaign, for example, you just heard from Biden just now, ten thousand uh, dollars for for some of those folks, and twenty thousand dollars for those who are the most vulnerable students. In Canada, we proposed in this last election, for example, twenty thousand in student debt forgiveness. Uh, you know, at that number in, in Canadian dollars, because we you know we agree with Biden that students are feeling the brunt of uh, of this crisis.
0: Okay, so you think Canada should do the what the same thing, up to twenty thousand dollars in debt forgiveness?
6: Oh, yes, totally. I think that we've yeah. seen, for example, tuition increases massive. You know, you, you can talk to any student. There's not one student in British Columbia or Alberta, where I'm from, or even across the country, that's going to tell you that they save money going to school. You know, it's been pretty expensive this last time, and we're seeing public institutions being pinched, especially our public schools. And we're seeing those tuition, uh, those tuition prices increase, and sometimes in the middle of, uh, of students' terms.
0: Okay, let's listen to another clip here of the U.S. president. So this is Joe Biden making the case for student debt forgiveness in the United States. There's been criticism of this move, especially from the Republican opponents, of course, who are saying this could be bad for the American economy, could fuel inflation. Biden doesn't see it that way. Let's have a listen here. People can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. And by the way, when this happens, the
2: whole economy is better off.
0: U.S. President Joe Biden speaking this week about student debt relief in the United States, speaking to NDP MLA Blake Desjardins. Should we do the same thing here in Canada? Do you do you agree with him that when you forgive student debt, you write these debts off, It's it's good for the economy?
6: Oh, it is good for the economy. What we're doing is we're unlocking, you know, purchasing power of a whole generation of folks who want to get into the housing market, for example, who want to be able to make sure they can put uh, food on the table while they're going to school. What, what we see is the alternative, for example, is that these students begin to rely on other public relief. Sometimes this public relief isn't satisfying or can really do the job that it needs to to keep folks afloat while they're in school. So if they sometimes leave school altogether and we miss out on that skilled labor. We miss out on that education and becomes a brain drain in our society. You know, any good economy makes sure that we attract good minds, make sure that we build our good economy by ensuring that we have our students have some of the best training in the world. And when we, we back off on those commitments, particularly when we make sure that students can't even cross the finish line because it's too expensive, we've really done a damage to our economy. And so I really agree that we need to find ways to forgive the student debt and quickly. We also need to find other ways to actually support students because it's not going to be a, a one a one you know a silver bullet here. We can't say that student debt forgiveness is going to solve all of people's problems, especially in Vancouver. You know, Vancouver is a site of some of the highest cost of living in the country. We need to look right. at, for example, how we, we address the, the cost of living in in all sectors, particularly food and housing. These are two sectors that have seen some of the largest increases in pricing, not even right. close to the price of inflation. And so I think we need to actually pay for it by way of a windfall tax, because those companies are making billions hand over fist.
0: Okay. Of course, you will get the fairness argument on this though. And you, you, I'm sure, I know you've heard this, this said here on our side of the border as well. That hang on a sec. If you eliminate the debt of some students today, is that fair to people who went through college or university, racked up a bunch of student loans and work hard, worked very hard in many cases for years to pay them off? How is that? fair to that person who worked hard to pay off their own debts to now be told effectively as a taxpayer okay you you also have to pay off someone else's debts on top of that let me play a clip here for you and then i'll get your thoughts so this is okay this is in the united states the republicans just furiously attacking biden over this debt relief south of the border this is a republican senator here named tom cotton from arkansas and you'll hear him make the argument here that this is not fair to people who have already paid off their debts have a listen here
5: not only do they not benefit from this, but they are harmed by it because they now are on the hook through their tax dollars and our public debt for paying off hundreds of billions of dollars of other people's loans. Not just It's also yeah. highly inflationary, highly inflationary mm-hmm. at a time when we still have record high inflation. And finally, it simply encourages colleges to raise tuition, harming a new generation of students. That's, that's why I say this is a terrible policy. It's going to harm many more Americans than it will help.
0: Okay, speaking to NDP MP Blake Dejarle. Okay, Blake, he, he raised a number of issues there. Let's start with the fairness argument that he raises first. There, though, first, like, is it fair to tell people who've already paid off their loans that now you have to help pay off someone else's?
6: Well, let's <clears throat> just look at the pure comp, you know, comparison here between the Canadian students and the American students. You know, the American students is paying far more. They have far more options for loans, and those loans are sometimes private and they're massive because the schools and academies are paying of. Lost public funding over the course of American history. And our institutions, however, have disproportionately larger public investments in them. And so what we've seen because of those investments over time was low tuition costs. So when we have low tuition costs here in Canada, we have lower student debt. And so let's even talk 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Students are paying sometimes 30, 50% less the tuition costs today. Those debts are disproportionately lower this generation or last generation than it is this generation. This isn't a problem that Kind of existed throughout all of Canada's student debt planning. This is a problem that's really ballooned, and right now, generations facing with student debt is facing the largest and most unpayable student debt we've ever seen. And so, I think that warrants action. But I also don't want to write off the yeah. solutions that some of the some of the critics are mentioning. You know, I'm a supporter of funding our public institutions so that we can get more accessibility to public institutions. So I think that's part of the equation that's being that's being missed by Biden.
0: What about the argument? You, you heard the, that senator make this argument that this is inflationary. That if you continue to, if the government effectively continues to pour money into people's pockets through these type of debt relief measures, debt forgiveness, that is just going to fuel even more inflation. We got record high inflation already. Could student debt relief make it even worse?
6: Student debt relief is not going to make inflation worse. Of course, what we're going to see is more government spending, of course, but we're also going to see is some people unlocking more potential and entering a higher tax bracket or eventually entering into a position that's bringing in more economic wealth to the country. You know, where Engineers don't sit on their hands when they get a degree. They go and work. And so we've got to calculate that and understand that they're bringing in wealth there at, at, at the same time. But in order to tackle that argument in a really real way, we have to talk about what it means when they say, public spending is de- deteriorating our social safety net because that's actually what they're saying they're saying that a social safety net doesn't work for people a social safety net shouldn't be invested in therefore we should rely on the on the, the private market in order to just get everyone to strap on their you know put their boots real high and then work really hard and pay off all the debt that's not going to solve the problem here this record inflation is caused not only by public spending you know public spending sure i agree it's part of it yeah but it's not the the largest part of it you know people are being pinched by supply chain issues, which is, which is really driving the cost of inflation. Up. What we're seeing as well is greed, corporate greed. You know, when you go to the grocery store, yeah. you expect if you hear the price of 8% inflation that things would go up 8%. These things are going up 20%, 25%. And so we have to really talk about the real culprits
0: to the, uh, the cost of living. Blake Desjardins, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Right on. Thanks so much, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot on the show about the overdose death rate in British Columbia. We've talked about the homelessness crisis we're seeing on the streets of our cities, the mental illness, the drug addiction on the streets of Vancouver and elsewhere. Check out some of these numbers here now, just out this week, on the number of illicit drug overdose deaths. More than 1,000 people of drug overdose deaths are reported so far this year. Go back to April of 2016. That's when the province declared a public health emergency from overdose deaths. More than 10,000, 10,000 people have died from illicit drug overdose deaths in that period. What should be done about this? What about the idea of forced treatment for drug addiction and mental illness is known as involuntary care people who are mentally ill or they're addicted to drugs or in many cases both dying on the streets of the city should they be forced to go into treatment that is a live debate in our province right now i've got troy clifford and ian tate standing by from the bc paramedics union first have a listen to this here now david eby the former attorney general who of course is running for the leadership of the ndp he's going to win he will be the next premier of the province he has come out recently and said look we should look at involuntary care for people instead of letting people die in the street they should be placed into care, even if it's against their own personal wishes. I'm going to play an extended clip here of David Eby speaking on this about this issue with our own jazz Joe Hall this was earlier this week. Have a listen to this. I'm going to I'm cut it long here because I want to. I want you to listen carefully to the what Eby has to say on this, and then we'll get into this issue of involuntary care. Have a listen to this.
5: I was really um, disturbed uh, to hear from a number of uh, emergency room physicians and first responders uh, that they are seeing the same people come in uh, three and four times in a single day uh, overdosing. And that um, there is a, a live debate about whether they can intervene in this process. And the way they've described it to me, they call it yo-yoing. Uh, and this is where someone uh, uses fentanyl, overdoses. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone delivers Narcan to them and all the drugs are chased out of their system and they're immediately in very intense craving for more fentanyl. Uh, and they check themselves out of the emergency room and go out and get more fentanyl and then overdose again. And this can happen multiple times. And they actually notice a degrading in the person's uh, mental abilities because they're causing themselves brain damage each time they do it. And, and it's not until they've caused so much brain damage that they are no longer in control of themselves uh, that that's when the healthcare system steps in and they become a permanent ward of the province of British Columbia. And I, I just think that's wrong. I, I I just can't imagine that there's nothing that we can do, that there's nothing that we should do, that we should allow someone to lock out the door after their second, third, fourth overdose uh, to do it again. Uh, and um, I think we can do better. And the challenge, obviously, is how do we avoid repeating the mistakes of the past in relation to Indigenous people or other vulnerable communities? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I just believe that we can do better than leaving people to die in the streets.
0: Okay, that's David Eby speaking to Jazz Joe Hall on the issue of involuntary care for people who are addicted to drugs. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Troy Clifford, president of the Paramedics Union. Very pleased to welcome Troy back to the show. Hey, Troy, thank you for coming on.
4: Thank you for having us on.
0: Okay, you bet. I've also got Ian Tate on the line. Ian is also with the Paramedics Union. He is a paramedic. Hey, Ian, thank you for doing this.
2: You bet. Good morning.
0: Okay, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Troy, let me go to you first. When you hear that description of David Eby talking about people, he described it as yo yoing, people who will overdose on fentanyl three, four times a day. Have you, in your years as a paramedic, like have you seen that? Have you witnessed that up close, up, up close and personal on the street?
4: Yeah, so both he and I have for sure can say that, and paramedics in all over the province are seeing that, and that's the tragedy of addiction, and and really what highlights how uh, we've got to a situation. You you gave all the numbers, and that's what paramedics experience every day, and and they, the the description of what he's talking about is is exactly the what the healthcare professionals, the doctors, the paramedics, the first responders are seeing every day, um, you know, and. It's, it's tragic. We know that mental health and addiction is is are linked very closely, um, and we see it every day downtown on the downtown east side, but all over this province. It's not uni- unique to that area. So um, absolutely, that is a reality. We're seeing that people are doing the yo-yo, they're doing multiple overdoses, and they're, they're in a cycle. And really, we need to get preventative, and, and the care, I think that's what he's saying, really, is that we need to provide these people the right care. Um, yeah. in, in situations not and you know if they're not able to get out of that cycle you know how do you how do you break that cycle that uh that and that's really the trick or not the trick but that's really the challenge that has not been done very well if at hey, all
0: ian, hey ian let me go to you on this like when you hear a description on that like i think for a lot of people that's a kind of a shocking thing to ponder someone who is overdosing continuously one after the other like three four times a day Overdosing on fentanyl, brought back with with Narcan by a first responder like yourself, and then the first thing the person does is they want more more drugs. They want more fentanyl. They overdose again. Like what kind of what kind of a effect does that have on someone on someone's body when they're going through that?
2: Well, it, it's obviously a huge concern, and uh, I can tell you our members are really on the front line of this crisis, and we have been since the very beginning, if not since the eighties. So it's stressful for everybody involved. But when you do revive somebody with Narcan, the vast majority of the times, they are not in what we call acute withdrawal. They actually come up normally well based on dosages of Narcan or Naloxone. So I I can tell you, though, we really want to focus a lot on harm reduction. We believe in safe supply, we believe in safe injection sites and stuff like that. So a lot of those political things are are kind of different from what we deal with at our level.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, that gets into this whole issue of involuntary care. And you heard David Eby talk about his opinion on that. And this is controversial to say the least. Like the BC Civil Liberties Association came out this week just ripping E B for suggesting this that the province should be looking at committing people or forcing people into treatment. Let me play another clip here of EB speaking to Jazz Joe Hall on this issue. People who disagree with him who say no you can't you can't force people into treatment. That's the wrong wrong approach. Here is how David Eby responds on that criticism.
5: I disagree fundamentally with this idea that there is nothing we can do and it's better to let the person die in the street. Uh, than to try to intervene at some point. And, and I think that healthcare uh, professionals, doctors, can make that judgment, and I think they can identify those opportunities, and that the intervention needs to be not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, restraining someone in the emergency room for a day or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, dignified, appropriate uh, interventions. Um, but I think we can do that.
0: Okay, Troy Clifford is the president of the paramedics union. Troy, what do you think of that argument, like involuntary care, forcing someone into treatment?
4: So, you know, this is a tough, well, you're right, it's political. And, you know, this is not an area that paramedics generally, we're here to help people. We don't judge people. And that's the relationship we have with our patients. So that's what, when you start talking about forced uh, uh, stuff, that's a tough, tough area. And that's not something that we would necessarily want to delve into. That's what medical experts, sometimes, you know, it's already very clear what, when people become a threat to themselves. But let's not get there. Let's talk about the harm reductions and the preventative stuff. And we need community, like we've been arguing or, or lobbying for community support, our community paramedic program, where we can engage these people in the community. We need better health. We know that addictions and mental health, the best place for them may not be in the in the emergency back of an ambulance or an emergency department unless they're having an acute crisis or a like Ian was talking about. So I, I think that the last resort and there's very strict criteria that the medical professionals can determine whether somebody is a threat to themselves or others. Um, but we shouldn't even be getting there. And that's where we should be focusing our attention. I think, um, you know, if somebody is, uh, is doing that, but uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, complication to this to get into a stirred up political debate about that. I don't think that's in the best interest of those people that are truly addicted and need to break those cycles um, okay. That's where we focus our, our attention. I think.
0: All right, continuing my conversation now with Troy Clifford and Ian Tate from BC's Paramedics Union. Ian, before the break there, we were talking about first responders and when they administer naloxone or Narcan to someone who is overdosed. Can you talk a little bit more on that? Like, you know, we heard that description of from David Eby there talking with people who are yo-yoing, as he described it, someone who overdoses, they're brought back with like a Narcan, and then they want... To they immediately overdose again. Like, I think you said that typically when you bring someone back with naloxone, they don't go into, like, withdrawal symptoms, or they're not... Like, when people come around, are they craving drugs again immediately, or usually not?
2: Yeah, well, the the thing you have to understand is, like, when someone overdoses, that's not actually the desired effect that anybody wants, especially the person with addiction. So one of the things that I think people don't really calculate into it is, if you look at the 10,000 deaths... Our members have probably revived 100 to 1 to those deaths. Wow. So it's, the numbers are actually so much bigger. So that the people that actually die from an overdose, comparatively speaking, to the ones that we revive on a daily basis, it's, it's astronomical if you actually put that into effect. So the yo-yoing, it's not like someone overdoses, wakes up, and then runs back to overdose. They want to run back to use again to get the desired effects, not to overdose. Because with overdose, somebody inevitably shows up, gives them Narcan, and and ruins it, essentially. So an overdose is not a desired effect of drug usage.
1: Yeah,
0: no, that's really... um, That is really interesting. Like, what is it like for... Let me go back to Troy. Troy, like, for a frontline paramedic, you guys are dealing with this every day. Like, what is it like to... Administer naloxone or Narcan to someone who's overdosed and have, and they come back, do people come back quickly? Like, what is that like?
4: Well, you know, in the, uh, I don't want to say in the old days, but in the early days when it was simple drugs like heroin or methadone and that, well, it was fairly easy to revive people with a 0. 0.4 milligrams. Uh, you know, and, and Ian's been around almost as long as I have. Uh, and that was fairly easy. They'd come back, you'd restore the respirations and uh, you'd move on or take them to the hospital. But nowadays with carfentanil and fentanyl, the the potency is so incredible. We're using incredible amounts of Narcan to Revive people, or even to get them back to a respiratory rate, um, and that's really the potency and the lacing that's going on. Uh, it's it's incredible, and that's really it's harder to revive people, um, and the longer they're down. I mean, Ian talked about those ones that we're reviving, and now with the you know take home kits and some of the reduction and safe injection, those those things are working. Um, you know, everybody has an Narcan kit that can they're free. Right. And uh, that is helping. So how many are those saving? You, you know, it's really so I think that, you know, earlier on, you talked about leaving the emergency room. The problem yeah. is people have supports in the community. Um, so when they leave the emergency, they're on their own to do what the was just describing. Um, We don't have a referral process to, you know, truly help these people in the community and try and break that cycle or get them out of the addiction. Um, And it's really hard when that's the environment you're in every day. Um, It's hard to break that cycle. And and we, we, we all want, you know, we got to reduce that stigma of uh, judging people. Nobody decided they wanted to be an addict addict and move down to the downtown East side. And, and it, it's a cycle of uh, unfortunately mental health and addiction is a horrible horrible disease.
0: Yeah, well let's let me let me go back to Ian and uh, Ian maybe you could pick up on that like when you revive someone from an overdose let's say they end up in emergency emergency ward as a result but then they're released back into society like is that is that frustrating for paramedics to to sort of see the cycle up close every day knowing that you know we need more services? To help people
2: well for starters the vast majority of these patients don't ever even go to the hospital i know last week i worked a shift where we did four before lunch and not one of them would allow to be transported to hospital because you've essentially revived them their mental state right back to normal they know that when they go to the hospital very little happens for them they don't want help or aren't being offered help and then they just leave so it's not like we're transporting every single overdose to the hospital. We obviously recommend that. We're concerned about, you know, the half life of, of Narcan when in conjunction with the length of, of the of the opioid that they're using. But the reality of it is, is not all of them are going. But it is heartbreaking for our paramedics to see what's become of the street level paramedicine with this drug crisis, with the staffing crisis, with what happened with COVID. Like, it's just another crisis that we deal with that has become commonplace now. So it's just a big part of, our, of what we do on a regular basis when it wasn't 20 years ago.
0: Okay, running out of time, we just have one minute left. Troy, I'll go to you for the last word here. Uh, what do you think needs to be done? Like, what should be pri- the priority for government right now? We just got one minute left here.
4: Yeah, really, I think what we've been talking about, harm reduction, safe supplies, and uh, safe site, you know, we've been, you know, there's some really good stuff that's been done from a prevention perspective, but we need to, you know, the, the four components, you know, prevention, supports in the community, um, more addiction and mental health supports that get them out of the cycle. um, And, you know, and making sure that the, you know, when they do Either in the community and don't go to the hospital, or when they do go to the hospital, there's there's the supports are offered to them to try and break that cycle. And you know, I think uh, community paramedic programs and community support groups and mental health okay. and that is, is the solutions for this sort of stuff. So it's a a multi pronged approach. But uh, you know, I think the, really that's really the, how simple it has to be. Is that what okay. we've been doing has been working in a lot of senses, and we're well ahead of many places in in the, in the world. But we're also a long way okay. to go to really acknowledge what the real okay. bottom line is and how thank tragic
0: you. it is. Thank you guys for your time and thank you for the important work you're doing on the streets of BC. I appreciate it a lot.
2: Thanks, Mike.